You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. On our show, we love talking about your money, your investments and savings, your money concerns, your successes, but also your questions. We dive into every bit of it. And I don't think it's a secret that one of my favorite topics to dive into is how money makes you feel feel. The intersection of money and happiness and money and health, both physical health and emotional health, is so important because at the end of the day, that is why we work. We build our careers and we squirrel our money away so that we can live the lives that we want and have the kinds of experiences and things that make us happy. But what really makes us happy when it comes to our money? There are as many answers to that question as there are people on earth. But I love diving into the research to see how people are really feeling and maybe get a peek into something that I hadn't considered before. I suspect that most of you listening out there are saving for retirement or you're planning on getting started soon. And we talk a lot on this show about how much you'll need. I often cite Fidelity's rule of thumb for successfully funding your later years, that you should aim to save at least one times your salary by age 30, three times by 40, six times by 50, eight times by 60, and 10 times by age 67 or whenever you retire. But those are just the numbers. What about the joy? What about the happy? Here to share that side of the coin with us today is Wes Moss. He's a CFP and managing partner at Capital Investment Advisors. He's host of the podcast, Retire Sooner, and author of the book, What the Happiest Retirees Know. In his book, Wes shares that the happiest retirees have a minimum 
$500,000 in liquid savings. They've paid off their mortgage. They have multiple streams of retirement income. They have at least three close friends and so much more. I can't wait to dive into it all. Wes, welcome. Jean, great to be here. Thank you. Well, it is my pleasure. Let's start by talking about the book. Tell me about the research study. My listeners know I love data and I like to learn about how you collected it. I had this idea, uh, and I think this is when my kids were little. I have four still relatively young kids, age 14 down to five. And when my 14-year-old, I think was two, there was a popular book called Happiest Baby on the Block. And it was all of these ideas on how you can be a better parent, how to make raising kids easier. And I thought for a minute, why isn't there something like the happiest retiree on the block? So I had this idea of, well, I might have some ideas around money and happiness, but I've always been fascinated by that relationship. How much money does it take to be in the happy camp versus unhappy? And then what are the habits of this group? So I decided to dive in and actually, instead of me saying, here's what I think the happy retirees do, let's just do some real research and dive in and figure this out. In every study that I do, Gene, I'm able to ask a series of questions that can help me separate those who report higher levels of happiness relative to those who report not so high levels or lower levels. And once I get back all this data, essentially what we get down to is how do we emulate the habits of the happy group? How do we avoid the habits of the unhappy group? And in this particular project, I have essentially 30 happy retiree habits and then to some extent, 30 things to avoid, but I, I kind of think of it as like a giant Italian family recipe. It's like been passed down from generation to generation. You don't have to use all 30 ingredients, right? You, as long as you know what they are, as long as you have a fair amount of them, you can pick and choose. You can figure out which ones you like, which ones might make sense. Add more of this, take away that. And that's really what all this research is all about. I don't think we're going to get into all 30 ingredients. We want to make sure <laughs> okay. that we capture the most important ones, right? If we're talking about an Italian family dinner, we're not going to leave out the basil. We're not going to leave out the garlic. You know, I might I might drop some of the lesser needed spices that I don't have in the pantry, but we'll the get there. The marjoram or whatever that one is. Exactly. <laughs> however we, we pronounce it. But before we do that, can we just talk about what retirement is these days? The people that you're talking to, are they working? Are they consulting? Are they not? And what do you find about how that does or doesn't add to their fulfillment? I have a whole section in the book called The Retirement Gray Zone, because what I've also learned is that the earlier people tend to retire, the more they end up in a period of time where to them, you might call it retirement, you might not call it retirement, or they've financially reached a point where they don't have to really save maybe, but they might be too young to start spending or tapping the money that they have saved. And they can go from this 24-7 work life that a lot of Americans end up falling into. And they can go into a period of time where they're not as under quite as much pressure mm -hmm. to earn and save. So they can, and particularly over the last couple of years, right, with COVID, we've learned to be able to be more flexible, work from anywhere, maybe be geographically in different places of the United States, and end up in what I call this retirement gray zone. And there's a lot of people, Gene, that fall into that category. They're not quite ready to fully stop working. So they end up doing something tangential to what they used to do, or, or they end up with one of their core pursuits or hobbies on steroids that might end up 
making some sort of living or some sort of money. And they can dive into that. Yeah. And I think it's semantics, right? My husband says he's retired, but he works as a career coach, which is adjacent to what he used to do. He's earning some money. He's not earning what he was earning, but he's busy. I think that for me, keeping busy, doing something that I find fulfilling is going to be incredibly tied to fulfillment. When we talk about the 10 habits, let's start with the money. I mean, you found in your research that the happiest retirees have more than $500,000 liquid. I don't want to scare people, right? I lay out these benchmarks and people try to get there, but I know that there are people listening who feel like they don't have it and they won't have it. And that social security, which they will strategize to take as smartly as they can, will make up a substantial part of their retirement income. So talk to me about the importance of this $500,000. I mean, if we know that we're not going to get there, you can't tell me that I can't be happy. Again, this is funny. I get a pushback on both sides of the equation here, Jean. I've, I've heard, how do you expect me to get to $500,000? And that's just on the liquid side. I also have to have a house. Like that's unattainable. And then I get from the other side, I'll hear 500000 That's not nearly enough to retire. Like that's crazy. So there really is no right answer, right? There are financial folks out there that have said, and I know that even Susie Orman has said, you've got to have at least 5 million. Or I've heard even 10 million, and you've got to work forever until you die. That's the only way you can never run out of money. First of all, I think what's important, Gene, is the relationship of more money does lead to more happiness. However, only to a certain point. Going from $30,000 a year in income to 60 is a big deal, right? A huge level of, oh, I have more cushion. Going from a million dollars a year to $2 million a year, what's the difference? And if you look at it from a medium, it shows that to jump into the happy camp or the kind of that inflection point, yeah, it's $500,000. So for some people, that seems crazy and unattainable. And some people look at them and they say, Wes, come on, $500,000, I can't retire on that. But that to me is just one piece of the equation. You had asked about, hey, what about work? Well, the next piece of the equation is, what are my core pursuits? These are my hobbies on steroids. These are the things I live for once I stop working at my 24-7 grind job. Well, one core pursuit can be tied to some sort of career. And again, we think of core pursuits as volunteering and tennis and travel and walking and biking and hiking and all these things that are fun, fun, but... It's very powerful to have a core pursuit that is also some sort of income. And I see so many Americans taking that approach. I think it almost counts double as a core pursuit because you're working and something you love. It might not be your job as a full-time 24-7 lawyer, but it might be something new and different. And that, I think, is a huge piece of the happiness equation. Look, I think earning money makes us feel safe and secure it makes us feel powerful. I like earning money. Earning money makes me feel good. So I'm not surprised that that adds to happiness. One of the things I was interested to read was that you said that having several different income sources is a happiness booster. Why is that? And do these income sources need to be fixed sources of income, guaranteed sources of income in retirement? So, Gene, I think this goes back to, right, our greatest fear, no matter what, is running out of money. What would you rather, if you're going to get $10,000 a month, would you rather get one check every month in the mailbox for 10 grand, or would you rather get 10 $1,000 checks? 
And if you think about it for just for a second, you think, oh, it'd just be easier for the one $10,000 check. But then you start to think, wait a minute, well, what happens if something happens to that one big source? Then all of a sudden, now I have a real problem. So there's something psychologically powerful and important about multiple streams of income. So I think of, do you want one big river of income or do you want 10 tributaries or five or three? They're all coming together into one income stream. And I think there's just a psychological impact. And it's not so much about the level of income, but the number of different sources that lead to higher levels of happiness. And part of that might just be a little bit more income, a little bit more cushion, but part of it is the psychological power of knowing that if God forbid something happened to one of them, I've got several left. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think this is not just for retirees. I think this is for everybody these days. As we've become less loyal to a single employer for much of our lives, or as we have dug into participate in the gig economy, you know, jobs just feel a lot less secure than they ever did before. And this is, you know, despite the fact that we're in the midst of a hiring boom, they always feel a little more precarious and knowing that you've got multiple streams of income to me again, and this is, this is the way that I've lived my life for the last 10, 15 years just feels, just feels safer. And Gina, I think you're exactly right. And even more so today, Right. So as this economy has kind of evolved and we've gone from some people work from home to more people being able to work from home, it just feels more normal to have several different things that you're doing. And I think to your point, it feels safer. And that's exactly the same thing I think once you are in retirement. More and different is really important. Are there any other strictly financial habits that tied into the happiness of retirees? There's several. As years to pay off mortgage go down, happiness levels go up. Somebody that had 12 years on their mortgage left on average had lower happiness levels than somebody had three years left. And it's almost a, a perfectly directional relationship, whereas the light at the end of the tunnel of not having to make a mortgage payment anymore gets bigger. Happiness levels go up. And there's this forever debate in the financial industry. I mean, mortgage is 3%. Why wouldn't you just invest all your other money in the market and make 10, right? So it's a totally rational financial argument to say, of course, you don't need to pay the mortgage off, accelerate that. Invest the difference, invest, and you're going to make net of 7 or 6%. But there's something really powerful psychologically. And to your point, at the top of the podcast, money is so much more about just money. And this is one of those pieces of the, the Italian family recipe is that, hey, your propensity to have more financial peace of mind, more cushion, more higher levels of happiness, just get better and go up when we figure out a plan to get rid of the mortgage. So here's the statistic that I cite. Retirees with five years or less on their mortgage, five years or less on the mortgage payoff, are four times more likely to be in the happy camp than unhappy. Wow. Wow, that's big. How about the existence of a plan? Our sponsors at Fidelity did a piece of research and they pointed to that as one of the three big stress reducers. Okay, this is interesting. And I, I wanted to know something similar to that. Like how often are we supposed to talk about money? If you're talking less than two hours a month, that means you're kind of not talking about it at all. And it points to low levels of happiness. If you're talking between three and five hours a month about money, in some capacity, 
there are very high levels, or points toward, towards high levels of happiness. What was interesting, which again, I didn't expect, is that over five hours a month, talking about money, happiness levels actually started to decline. So the way I look at this, Gene, is that it's important to talk about money, but not in happy retirees. They talk about it, but they don't seem to obsess over it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I love that, actually, because it's a diminishing return, right? After you talk about it and you get all of your to-dos and mm-hmm. all of your goals out of the way, which, you know, maybe gets you in that two to five hour a month time frame, you're just revisiting, you're rehashing, and maybe you're nagging your spouse or your partner or your, or your yeah, or you're obsessing. And that makes total sense. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Emotional Badass is the weekly mental health and wellness podcast dedicated to empowering you with the emotional education so many of us crave. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, a psychotherapist with expertise in talk therapy, personal growth, and therapeutic healing. Join me every week on the Emotional Badass Podcast as we delve into the heart of emotional wellness, tackling topics from stress management and coping strategies to the nuances of being highly sensitive. We navigate life's challenges, uncover the subtleties of gaslighting and manipulation, and confront narcissism head on. All the while, we learn to forge healthy boundaries that enrich both our personal and romantic relationships. With brand new content every Sunday and over 300 past episodes in our archive, there's something for everyone. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. I am talking with Wes Moss. He's the author of the new book, What the Happiest Retirees Know. So what do they know about non-financial? at the top of the show, you got to have at least three friends. Three is the magic number? My buddy, Dan Butner, who wrote The Blue Zones of Happiness, right? The six places people live the longest in the world. I remember him telling me that back in the 1980s, as Americans, we reported three close connections or close friends. And then in present day, fast forward to the world we live in today, despite the proliferation of Facebook and social media, where we have hundreds or thousands of friends. When it comes to close friends, we report less today than we did 30 years ago. In fact, we've gone from three down to 1.7 friends, close, close relationships. Yeah. And we get these diminishing marginal returns. So more money equals more happiness up to a certain point. Then we kind of get this plateauing effect, or as you said, economists would call it diminishing marginal happiness. When it comes to close social connections, there is no diminishing marginal happiness. It is like a straight shot. More friends, more close connections. 
is more happiness. Now, we can't have 100 close friends. Then in my research, describe this when I'm asking this question. These are people you call with really good news or really bad news in any given day. You feel comfortable calling them really good news and really bad news. And I don't know, sometimes it's maybe even harder to call with really good news, right? It's like you're proud or feel safe to share that with these people. That's a close friend or close connection. And the number is at least three. It's actually, it's about 3.6 when it comes to these close connections is, is the level of the happy retiree. Super important. Any advice for people who are feeling like they're in the, you know, oh, well, I only have two. Well, I only have 2.5. Yeah, listen, I think about this. I'm like, gosh, I'm, I'm lucky to have any friends, for God's sakes, Gene. Will we be friends? <laughs> Another question I ask is how much do you see these people? Because I think we also tend to fall into the trap of close friends or old friends that I don't see. Happy retirees understand that it's a commitment. Friendship and close connections, is a, there's work involved. That doesn't feel like work, but it does take effort. And it really, and, I, and I, what I want this to help people do is understand just how critical it is to say, look, you know, you know, if I just spent a little bit more time, I said yes more, or maybe I was more proactive. So it doesn't take like, you're not seeing people every single day, but you are seeing people on a routine basis. This is why these are all ingredients in a recipe. And you can focus in on some of these, or you can back away from some of these. This is one that I think you need to spend some time on. First of all, it's one of my favorite ingredients. Two, a little bit of work here goes a long way. And I would just challenge people to be intentional about either being more proactive or saying yes more when it comes to socialization, because it's not a nice to have. It is a absolute must have. And there's one other piece that I found when it comes to this social. Happy retirees have at least one social epicenter, like at least one. What is that? What is a social epicenter? So church is an easy example, right? Even if you only go to church a little bit, I have a, whole, I have a chapter on faith and giving, believing and do good works. One of the stories I tell in the book, there's a group that started in Atlanta. It was actually from a men's Bible study. These guys got together. It was Monday nights and none of them knew each other. And over the course of about a year, they said, we're going to do a Monday night brewing thing. So we get together, we talk about And then they opened up a little brewery, brew pub called Monday Night Brewing Company. And now these same couple guys that were in a Bible study, they didn't even know each other. They were in totally different businesses, now end up having this whole network of brewing companies. And I'm thinking for a lot of people, I mean, this could be your book group. This could be your running club. This could be... My friends are obsessed with pickleball. This could be your pickleball game. There's so many different social gathering places, social epicenters. Catherine, our producer, loves yoga. It could be where she takes yoga or teaches yoga. It could be all of these things. Does it help when they're physical in terms of I'm looking for, is there a connection between happiness and exercise, happiness, and physicality. So I almost call this the ings because it's running, biking, walking, hiking, golfing, anything that I see that happy retirees from a health perspective, they are very active typically. So church is maybe a non-physical exercise, but the other ones are travel, running. Many of your examples are both athletic, physical, and they're social and they all work. And it doesn't matter what they are. It's just, it matters that you have several of them. Your book actually goes there with regard to sex. How often are happy retirees having sex? 
at least once a month. More is better. More activity, if you will, leads to higher levels of happiness. But less than that once a month, you reported lower, higher propensity to land in the unhappy group. Don't shoot me. It's just the research. I'm sticking with this for a second. Can we talk about the ages of these retirees? Because there are, you know, they talk about retirement as a couple of phases. And, and one phase is, is a very active retirement. Like as you get out of your 60s, maybe, and out of your 70s and into your 80s, do you still have to do it once a month to stay happy? <laughs> Listen, I don't know the answer. I wish I knew the answer to that. Because the average age in this survey is 60, right? So there's lots of people in their late 40s, early 50s, and there's people that are 70, 75. So who knows if the Different decades have higher percentages than lower. I just asked the number in aggregate in relation to happiness. And my baseline, Gene, is at least once a month. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll let you off the hook. Last question, Wes. When we look at the recent recession, one of the things that we saw was that retirees felt less stress overall than others. Did they know something that the rest of us didn't? Okay, so wow, that's a good question. So, Gene, tell me. So, the during the last re which recession? You're talking about the COVID during one, the you're during the, the COVID during okay. COVID and the recession that came along as part of COVID, but also just during the pandemic, retirees felt less financial stress than others. I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. The number one, we have gone through. If you think about how investors have done over the last call it decade or so, it's been a pretty good decade. Once we came out of the great financial crisis here in the United States and really around the world, equity investors or just investors in general really kind of got rewarded for their patience, which takes us to right before COVID and the pandemic. And that was a 10-year run where savers started to really get rewarded. So I think it may go back to financial education is getting a little bit better in the United States. There's more amazing podcasts like Her Money. There's more tools to say, hey, let's do a little bit of planning because it goes a long way. And that, to me, I think is, is really powerful. I think there's so many interesting factoids. You tell me. What, why is it? I'm interested in that. What, what do you think it is? I think the older people get, the less they feel like they have to strive, at least when it comes to material things that they need. So when we have a scenario where they have to dial it back a little bit in terms of spending because there's a hitch in the economy, I just think they feel like it's more in their control. And it is more in their control because they're out of their high spending years. They're out of the pressures of having to pay for college. Maybe a lot of them have paid off the mortgage. And so they can take one fewer vacation and they can feel like they've reined it in. Whereas people who are in those high spending years don't necessarily have that luxury. It's been really, really fun and interesting for me to talk to you. Wes Moss, the book is What the Happiest Retirees Know. Thank you so much for being with us. Jean, thank you for having me on Her Money. Always a pleasure. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And we are back. Catherine Tuggle has joined me. Hi, Catherine. Hello, Jean. That was a lot of statistics. I hope I hope <laughs> I didn't overwhelm people. Sometimes I have to realize that not everybody is as obsessed with the numbers as I am. Yeah, I think this stuff is really interesting. It was a great breakdown. I was wondering anecdotally what you have seen over the years that from happy retirees and what sets them apart. 
So I did a big money and happiness study more than a decade ago now. It was the basis for a book called You Don't Have to Be Rich, which in paperback was called The Ten Commandments of Financial Happiness, because when Money Magazine ran an excerpt, they called it The Ten Commandments of Financial Happiness, and it did really well, so then they wanted to change the name of the book. So, you know, it is what it is. But I think that the happiness of retirees really has a lot to do with the fact that they know what they have coming in. They know that there's a certain amount that they can control. It's a life that feels a little bit more controllable because you no longer have to manage necessarily that earnings part, that working part of your life. And that simplifies the menu of choices. I do understand what he's saying about the $500,000. When you think about how much money you can pull from a portfolio each year. If we go by the 4% rule, if we talk about taking 4% out of a portfolio each year, that's $20,000 on a half million dollars. Add that to Social Security and you get yourself to an income, maybe 50-ish, 60-ish thousand dollars. Maybe you have some additional income from other sources. What we know is that in order to be happy, people have to be able to be comfortable. They can't be worried all the time about meeting their fixed expenses, housing, transportation, food, and healthcare. And if they don't have enough to do that, then they are going to be worried and then they are going to be unhappy. It's really once you cross that comfort line. And people really need to understand that it's not the same in all areas of the country. In fact, it's vastly different. More money doesn't necessarily buy you more happiness. Yeah. I mean, to that point about the fixed expenses, I mean, this is probably part of the reason why retirees who almost have their mortgage paid off are happier because that's not hanging over them. It's not a question mark as to whether or not they'll be able to meet that expense every month. That was my favorite factoid. Yeah. A, because the line was so measurable. But B, because I know this. Like in my, I don't know it on paper. I've never seen it studied before. But I know this in my gut. I know that I am happier when I have no debt. And I just think that a life in retirement with no mortgage is a lot easier to wrap your brain around. Absolutely. So let's take some questions. Yeah. Our first question today comes to us from Rachel. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm 44 years old and feeling incredibly anxious about the future. I was a late bloomer for almost everything in my life, including getting married at age 42 and becoming financially savvy by listening to podcasts like yours around the same time. I grew up in a family with a terrible spending story. My mother was an emotional shopper and quit working to have me and my brother. No one ever stuck to a budget or invested. Luckily, my late father had a pension. I inherited my mother's spending habits and shoved my bills into a box for decades without opening them. For years, I didn't invest in my 401k because my monthly credit card payments were so high. But at age 42, I had a meltdown as most of my friends were buying property or thinking about retirement, and I had absolutely nothing. No savings, and I had been renting apartments all of my life. The good news is that two years ago, 
I reached out to a financially savvy aunt and she helped me create a budget and come to terms with my enormous credit card debt, $37,000. She also helped me choose more aggressive investments in my 401k. In the two years since, I've paid off $35,000 of this debt and changed my spending habits. I now have $104,000 in my retirement fund and my credit score shot up to $800 from the 600s. I also have a $23,000 student debt from my master's program. The problem is that I'm afraid I've wasted too much time and I'm destined to be a homeless bag lady. Is it too late for me to be like some of the listeners who call into your show with adult finances? I have no children to take care of me when I'm old, and I'm thinking of purchasing long-term care insurance. My husband is an artist, and I am the breadwinner in the family. Right now, I earn $100,000 a year. I'm on track to pay off the rest of my credit card in the next month, but I have a meager $5,000 in my emergency fund. So my question is, what do I prioritize? I'd really like to buy a house in the next five years, as I want the equity, and the cost of a mortgage will be less than renting an apartment in New York City where I live. I'm also afraid that the $104,000 in my retirement is just not enough for my age. Do you think once the credit card is paid off, I should only pay the minimum on my student loans and prioritize the emergency fund? My expenses are around $3,000 a month, so I'd like to have $18,000 for six months. Once I have that emergency fund, should I start saving for a down payment on an apartment or should I pay off the student loan? Right now, I'm only putting 3% in my 401k to meet the employer match. I know I need to put more in, but I would feel a lot more relaxed with a fully stocked emergency fund. And lastly, what about long-term care insurance? I just don't want to wait until it's too late. Thank you so much for your help and everything you do to empower women every day. So first, Rachel, let me just say, like, this is big wow. You turned your life around completely and you did it in two years and you have made incredible financial headway. There are a lot of people who don't get started until they're in their 40s. Yes, we wish everybody would get started younger, but it just doesn't happen. And I know that you are not going to be a homeless bag lady. I know it a hundred percent because you have the good habits underway that you need to make sure that you end up in a better place. And just reading your letter, I know that you are never going back. So I want you to take that worry off the table. It's not going to happen to you. As far as your priorities, I agree. I'd like to see you have some more money in your emergency fund. I would also like to see you continuing to fund the 401k. What I'm less worried about, particularly with your 800s credit score, is the student loans. So sort of in order of operations, here's what I'd like you to do. First, take a look at the interest rate on that student loan. I don't know how you borrowed, but if these are private loans rather than federal loans, there's a really good shot that you can lower the interest rate by refinancing with this higher credit score, which will just allow you to pay it off cheaper, even if you stay with the same monthly payment or the same-ish monthly payment as you're making right now. Once you reduce that, I wouldn't prioritize that particular loan. I would aim to put a little bit more money into the emergency fund. 
You can just do that on a monthly basis as you get paid. And to both make sure that you're capturing the full match in your 401k and adding to that as much as you can, as well as diverting some money toward the down payment for a home. Go ahead and go out and do some research on the kinds of properties that you want to buy. I like to sometimes say that it's difficult to save in a vacuum. And I'd like to see what these properties are going to cost you, how much money you're going to need for that down payment, when you'd like to buy the home, and then you can do the math. Then you can say, all right, I'd like to buy a home in three years. That's 36 months. I'm going to need X for a down payment. And that means that I have to divert $1,000 a month out of my other savings and into this down payment account in order to make it possible. Um, I also think that your salary is going to continue to go up. And as that happens, you can continue to boost the amount of money that you're putting into retirement. Finally, you asked about long-term care insurance, and I think long-term care insurance is a really good idea, but not yet. At your age, it's a little bit too young to think about buying it. We think the sweet spot for making a long-term care insurance purchase is somewhere around 50 to 55. And if you buy it before, then you're going to pay the premiums for too many years. If you buy it after that, you are going to pay too much for each yearly premium. So table that for a while. Don't let that be a financial responsibility that's sitting on your head right now. Focus instead on the other three things and know that you are doing an incredible job. And the only other thing that I would suggest is to bring your husband along for the ride. You mentioned that he's an artist and you're the breadwinner in the family, but he probably does have some earnings and he should be involved in these decisions that you're making for your joint life. So just make sure that you are sitting down and talking. Maybe if you are listening to Wes, you're sitting down and you're having a couple of hours worth of conversation on topics tangentially related to finance at least once a month or over the course of a month. And that'll get you from where you are to where you wanna be. A big congratulations for everything that you've done. I'm gonna actually ask Catherine to pull your address. I'd love to send you a copy of Women With Money because you are a woman with money. And I'm just really proud of everything that you've done. I love that, Jean, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, just starting to read her letter, talking about what a late start, and then to hear that she now has over $100,000 saved, it's incredible. I would just say, forget about the past. Like you are on a brand new path and to have been on that path for two years and to now have $100,000 in the bank is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Our next question today comes from Ellie. She writes, hi, Jean. First of all, I absolutely love your podcast. I discovered it two years ago when I graduated high school and first started thinking about money. It's very insightful and inspiring, and I recommend it to many of my friends. I'm a young 21-year-old female living in the UK. My father passed away during my teenage years, and my mother is not very money savvy, and this makes me worried as we currently don't have anyone earning income in our household. My family was fortunate enough to have money for me to be able to attend university in the UK, which is a lot cheaper than American colleges, without taking out student loans. 
I was wondering if you could please push me in the direction where you think I could start educating myself more about money. I roughly have $100,000 sitting in my bank account, and I'm keen to invest it or start earning passive income. My mother had a bad experience investing money in the past, so she's unsupportive of me investing money, but I want to use the money in my bank account to set myself up for a financially healthy adult life. I want to build my knowledge and financial skills. Do you have any suggestions for where I could start? Many, many thanks. I do have a suggestion, a couple of suggestions, Ellie, and your mother's really lucky that she has you to think about all of these things. We at Her Money actually have a book coming out. It's called How to Money, and it is for young women. And it's not ready yet, but when we get our first batch which will be next spring, although people who want to pre-order the book will be able to pre-order it very soon. When we get our first batch of books, one of those is coming to you in the UK. So Catherine and I will make sure that we have your address so that we can send it to you. In the meantime, I don't want you to invest without knowing what this money is for. When we think about what we should do with our investments. Even when it comes to our asset allocation decisions, how much do we want to put in stock? How much do we want to put in bonds? How much do we want to keep in cash? We're making those decisions based on when we need this money, when this money is for. Now, if this $100,000 is all for your eventual retirement, if you're not going to touch this money for 50 years or more, well, then I would just say invest it in stocks. Put it into a diversified stock portfolio, knowing that the markets are going to go up and down during the course of that 50 years, but that over time they will go up. I don't have enough information from you to say that. Some of this money could be for buying a house. Some of this money could be for paying for other necessities, other commitments that you've already made. And if some of this money is for shorter term needs, then it absolutely should not be in stocks. If you need this money in the next few years, you want to keep it somewhere that is much safer than stocks. You want to keep it probably just in a bank account where it's not going to earn you much in the way of interest, but where you know that the principal is not going to be eroded because the market takes a turn. And so if you wouldn't mind thinking about what the money is for, then you and I can have a more in-depth exchange about exactly what to do with that money. So when you hear this answer, send me another note. Let me know. Send us your address so we have it when the book comes out and send me another note so that I can give you some additional guidance. It would be irresponsible for me to say, well, you're 21, just do X, Y, and Z because I don't know how far you are from your individual goals. I love that, Jean. It's just like what we were talking about with Wes. Everybody's situation is different and there's going to be something different that's going to make you happy and bring you closer to your goals than there is for everybody else. Yeah, you're totally right. And how excited are we about how to money? Oh my God, I cannot wait. 
I know that you have seen your name on a book before in the stores, but I, I'm just going to freak out. I'm going to go into every bookstore in America and just stand there and gawk at it. Well, it's so beautiful. Uh, this book was illustrated by an artist named Nina Cosford, and you should all check her out on Instagram. We are all obsessed with her messy buns, but she's really fun. She brought it to life. This book was written not just by me and Catherine, but by the whole Hermione team, and we can't wait to share it with you. I know. I'm so excited. And how much would we have loved to have something like that handed to us when we were young women? I mean, that's what I keep thinking is that this is the advice that we wish we had been handed and we are about to hand it to every young woman in America and the world. So it's amazing. It is. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Jean. In today's Thrive, what to do if you know that you're going to miss a credit card payment? Well, many of us never set out to miss credit card payments on purpose. Sometimes life happens. A new Wallet Hub survey found that 47 million Americans, about one in five adults, think they will miss at least one credit card due date this year. The most common reasons given? Forgetfulness or not having enough money. While missing a credit card payment or making a late payment may not seem like a big deal, it can have a negative impact on your credit score. If you're more than 30 days past the bill's due date, it hurts. And a lower credit score could mean you have to pay more for other important things down the road, like a house or a car, because you may not qualify for the lowest interest rates when it's time to borrow money. If you find yourself in a place where you may be late on a credit card payment, the important thing to know is that you have options. At hermoney.com this week, we've got a rundown on the steps you should take before and even after you're late with a credit card payment. First, call the company to ask for more time. If you ask nicely, repeat nicely, and you have a history of making payments on time, you may be able to get an extension on your payment or have a late fee waived if you're already late. Wallet Hub's research found that out of a thousand people surveyed, nearly nine in 10 who tried to get a late fee waived were successful. Second, you can look into a balance transfer. If high interest rates are contributing to your mounting debt, investigate whether a balance transfer to another card with a lower interest rate, preferably 0%, could be an option for you. A word of advice, it pays to shop around. Check out Fiona.com where you can see a variety of credit card offers and even personal loan options that may be a way for you to pay off your card debt at a lower interest rate than you're paying now. Last but not least, make sure you automate monthly billing. The Wallet Hub survey found that high income earners are twice as likely to miss a card payment than low income earners because of forgetfulness. If you're often worried that you might just forget when your bills are due and not pay them, the fix is super easy. Set up an automatic transfer from your checking account for the minimum payments on your cards or any other bills that you owe. You can also set a monthly reminder on Google or Gmail calendar or through other email services to just alert yourself before you need to make a payment. The bonus is when you don't miss payments, you won't be charged late fees. Plus, automatic payments made on time month after month, they will help improve your credit score. 
Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Wes Moss for joining us to help us all chart a path toward a happier, more fulfilling retirement. And I gotta say, I thought that a lot of his advice really applied to life before retirement as well. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk soon. Keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts.